Good evening, my friends. Thank you for being with me, and I appreciate you for joining me in our continuing study of Catholicism and the Antichrist. Don't forget the ground rules. If you want to be credible, quote God. If you want to be dismissed, don't, and I'll just move past you. But if you're unsure as to how to respond to something I've said in our lesson tonight, refer to ground rule number one, quote God. Tonight we're going to deal with something that is going to lead us to an application that's a little bit difficult. I admit that, and maybe some, a lot of some are going to say it's just too blunt. But I think it's way past time for us to address this issue. There's a very popular movie going in this summer in America that is addressing the topic of child marketing, child slavery. Uh, it's addressing the idea of pedophilia and uh, children being sold as sex slaves and that kind of thing. And as we examine that topic and people are getting really you know, enraged about what is taking place and our hearts are heavy, I don't want you to forget the history of the Catholic Church. And we're going to conclude with this right here. We're going to conclude with priesthood pedophilia as one of our big applications this evening. And so I hope that you'll stick with me to the very end. Well, what I want to do before we get there, I'd like to ask, how do we get there? What brought this on? And so that's really going to be the topic this evening. Again, thanks for joining me. As you know, we always open up with five questions that I try to present so that you can study on your own. Uh, for those of you who are part of the Restoration School of Biblical Studies, you will have this, uh, these five on your final test. And so you might as well go ahead and start filling out the answers right now, and you'll be ready for that final test. Did you screenshot it? Good. We're moving on. Here we go. As I said, tonight I want to deal with this idea of uh, sexuality within the, within the Catholic Church. And specifically, I want, to, I want to zone in on their emphasis on celibacy. Uh, the idea of uh, there being some kind of a higher level of spirituality in, in the idea or in the concept of being celibate. Now, you know that that's true because think about their entire hierarchy. Their entire hierarchy is pressured to not marry to not experience intimacy, to have no idea what it's like to be a dad or a mom, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Uh, now, I know that there's different sects within Catholicism that do allow certain people to be married, etc., but by far, in fact, I was on a Catholic site just this afternoon, and they, they even admitted it, by far the majority of individuals within the hierarchy of Catholicism are very much subject to the peer pressure of don't marry, don't be a dad, don't understand what it's like to raise your own children. I mean, how upside down is that? I want to take you to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and, and again, this will be our passage that we'll use through the end of the semester as we zone in on that last word there. But the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. We're there. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You notice what's happening there. They're not really interested in truth. They simply want somebody to tell me that I'm... I'm doing it right. I don't really want you to tell me the truth. I just want you to tell me what I want to hear. And uh, they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And that's the, the word that we have been using as a launch pad into our discussion of Catholicism and the Antichrist. And you see the list there below, holy cannibalism, uh, Mary the demigod, demigod emphasizing the original sin, babies are evil, uh, Mary the demigod, prayerful idolatry, emphasizing the use of, of graven images 
and bowing before them, lighting special can candles, praying to them, etc. Opulent idolatry was kind of an extension of that, that previous one on Mary the Demigod, and we talked specifically about idolatry. And tonight, we want to deal with celibate elitism. The idea that if you will remain celibate, that you are somehow higher on the on the realms towards God. Now, now we know that that's true, and they won't they will not admit that. But we know that that's true because by far, by far, the majority of their people who are in the controlling hierarchy of the Catholic Church have concluded that they're better off not being married. And they they use a, a passage from Rome, uh, excuse me, from First Corinthians chapter seven to establish this. We're going to pick that apart here in just a moment, by the way. But all I want you to see tonight as I open this thing up is that there's this celibate elitism within the Catholic Church. You know it's true because by far the majority of their leaders claim that you need to be celibate. That that's a vow that they're going to take and that makes me a better, I guess you would say, more holy. I'm right, more righteous than you are because I, didn't, I never married. Which is odd because we know that especially with regards to the bishops, the elders, the overseers, that both Timothy and Titus were told that when you appoint them, make sure that they are family men, proven family men. We'll see more about that later. All right, here we go. As we uh, can go into this topic, I want you to notice again our, our passage that we've, we've seen so far uh, that is dealing with, we've seen it on several occasions prior to this, but it, we're, we're dealing with this idea of end times and what's going to happen. So the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching uh, of demons. Sounds very much like the passage that we've been using to open. Uh, through, or excuse me, yeah, through uh, the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, they're going to forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God has created, etc. I'm not going to deal with that require abstinence from foods, except to say that that's another one we could spend an entire session on with regards to Catholicism. And the, the laws that they have created, remember the, the stool that we've talked about, that illustration that they uh, the Catholic Church provided for me to, to use with regards to their authority. You've got one leg of the stool's magisterium, that's men. One leg of the stool is scripture. And then the third leg is church history, that's men. So two-thirds of their authoritative process has to do with what do men think. And one of the things that they often come concoct and they come up with is, is things like, you know, only eating fish on Fridays and stuff like that. And so they just, they, what they've done is they just went ahead and just made up rules as they went. And they're still making up rules because they believe the church has the right to do that. Debated just this afternoon, I was talking to a lady and, and you know, I just asked bluntly, I said, hey, so do you believe in sola scriptura? That's their fancy term to reference the idea of God's word's enough. All we need is God's word. And she wouldn't answer because you know what would happen if she answered it. I'm just going to nail that. I'm gonna, so God's not enough. And of course, that's what they that's what they believe. That's what they mean. But they won't say that to you because to say that to you, just in saying it, causes them to become antichrist in their doctrines. All right. What I want to do though is I want to take you to two two areas here before we examine that First Corinthians seven passage. I want to suggest to you that in answer to the question above, this idea of where, or excuse me, why is there celibate elitism, I'm going to suggest to you that it has, it, it journeys all the way back to Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a false doctrine of the first century that even John the Apostle, maybe I should say primarily John the Apostle, he not only hated it, 
But he went out of his way to debate it and to make sure that he wrote about it so that we would not have to be in, have that false doctrine inflicted upon us all these years later. Well, Catholicism, although they would not claim to be Gnostic in their viewpoint, they most certainly are in what you two of the primary things that you understand about Gnosticism. I'm absolutely convinced that the, the journey toward apostasy, as far as Catholicism is concerned, it began with Gnosticism. Gnosticism is best known for two things. Number one, that they had a special knowledge. The word gnosis uh, is where we get the word Gnostic, and it's the Greek word that means to know uh, and to, to have a, a knowledge of something. As I, years ago, was, was studying to, to write a book on Satan worship, I spent a lot of time researching what a cult is, what, what, what defines a cult. And there's a lot of things that define a cult. But one of the things that defines a cult is that they believe they have a special knowledge that can only be attained by being part of their group. Well, that's very much like Catholicism. I'll be honest with you. I've held up that, that copy of the Catechism before. Here it is. I think I got it right down here. You know, let me get over here where you can see it. Look at the size of that thing. And, I, and it's fine print. I can't. It's fine. I mean, it's just... That's, those are, these are all the rules that the Catholics have decided God either didn't manage to get into his book or we need to add, it, add to his book as time goes on. Anyhow, as we look at this idea of special knowledge and the cultic concept of having special knowledge, it ties back into our theme here with regards to celibate elitism, the magisterium, or the history of the church. Those folks are very elitist, and we admire them, and you can't be in a debate with a Catholic before they bring these folks up. And they, oftentimes, they'll actually send you to a YouTube video, or they'll try to quote one of these early church leaders, and they'll say, you just don't understand, you need to let, let them speak. All of which is, we have a special knowledge. They had a special knowledge. And it, it's bigger than you, Sonny. You can't understand on your own. You can't grab a Bible and read it for yourself and really know what's going on. So you got to have the magisterium and you got to have church history. But specifically that magisterium thing, the hierarchy of the, of the Catholic Church that believes that they have somehow, I'll give you another, debate a Catholic and inevitably they're going to say eventually, especially once they get cornered, they're going to say, but we're the ones who gave you the Bible. Hogwash. But they'll claim that. And in that claim, you see this elitist, I don't have to explain myself to you because I'm the one who gave you the Bible. Yes, you do have to explain yourself to me because you didn't give me the Bible and because God says that you have to be able to give an account for the reason that there's hope within you. And if you can't do that, don't send me to some YouTube video. If you can't do that, grow up. Learn to be a part of God's Word. But number one, with regards to Gnosticism, there is this special elitist knowledge. Number two, though, and this ties in maybe more directly to our topic this evening, there is the demonizing of the flesh. The Gnostics of the first century and beyond were individuals who believed that the flesh itself was corrupt. And all you, all you could do to, to remove yourself from the flesh was good for you. And, and so anything you could do to sacrifice the passions of the flesh, uh, things that you wanted to eat, uh, thing, uh, sexuality, etc. Whatever you could do to separate yourself from that. I was reading just last week, about some nuns who would literally have themselves bricked up into a wall because they felt like that that would cause them to be holier. 
But interestingly enough, they would select a young child. Sometimes the parents would give the child to the Catholic Church to be bricked up with that nun behind that wall. And they'd stay in there for months and months. And in that isolation, they supposedly were denying themselves and thus rising to a higher level of spirituality. Back to Catholicism. That's the whole idea with celibacy. That somehow being celibate makes you a better leader. Directly in conflict with what God actually says about a better leader needs to be somebody who is very much a family man. They do just the opposite. That's why it's antichrist in nature. The demonizing of the flesh, that was something very elitist about Gnosticism. I'm convinced that Catholicism grabbed that up and they began to rant, run with it, and that's where they continued down the path of apostasy. But let me give you a couple of examples. The hierarchical peer pressure that comes upon people within Catholicism to live in a denience of sexuality, the cravings for intimacy, etc., etc., from nuns to priests to cardinals to popes, they all largely have an emphasis on don't be intimate. Don't know what it means to be a father or a mother in the nun's case. Don't know what it means to be intimate with a spouse, physically speaking. Because in so doing, you are declaring a higher level of spirituality and thus it makes you a better leader. Remember where I told you we're going to end this thing with the whole priesthood of pedophilia. That's where we're going. I want to give you a second example, however, with this idea of demonizing the flesh. We've already talked about Mary extensively, but I want to draw you back to her again. Mary's perpetual virginity. The belief that Mary never had sex with Joseph after giving birth to Jesus. Now, the scriptures plainly say that, Mo, that, that, excuse me, that Joseph and Mary did not come together prior in that context, it actually says that Joseph did not know Mary until Jesus was born. And as I've proven in the past, you know, we, we've got scriptures that specifically uh, name the, his, his brothers. We know that he had sisters, etc. Uh, that is Jesus. And so clearly Mary did uh, have intimate relationships with Joseph. And, and if she didn't, what kind of a wife would that be? If she promises to be a good wife to her husband, but she refuses to have any intimacy with him, we're going to see First uh, Corinthians 7 here in just a moment. What kind of wife would that be? But they, they maintain this perpetual virginity of Mary largely because they have this, they have something against intimacy. It's, it's, it's like a dirtiness of the flesh for us to do that. And although they would allow it to happen in some situations, you certainly aren't going to rise in the levels of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church if you've ever been a part of that fleshly passion. And so you see that the demonizing of the flesh leads into this idea of celibacy rising to an elitist position. You want to be a good Christian? You want to be the best kind of Christian? Don't be getting married. And yet, Paul writes to Timothy and Titus that if you're going to be a shepherd, and that seems to be you know, one of the best kind of Christians you could be, a shepherd of God's family, you need to be a proven family man. And they'll say that in both of those passages that it's actually talking about that you need to be a one-woman man. It's not, it's not talking about the fact that you need to be married. It's talking about the fact that you ought not have multiple wives, hogwash. 
because it goes on to say, and you must raise your children. <laughs> so are you suggesting that somehow you're allowed to have children without getting married and that's a good thing? Demonizing of the flesh is the second area of Gnosticism that it's most known for. And I'm convinced it is the foundation blocks for the apostasy that has now become the Catholic Church. All right, I told you we're going to get to it, and here it is. This is their passage. Now, I didn't have space to put it all up there, so I encourage you, I beg of you, read the entire chapter, okay, and beyond. All right, but when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, their core chapter, you, you recognize that verses 1 through 3 are very important to the context because as you open up the chapter, he sets the stage for why he's even talking about this. Now, before I go there, I want to remind you that Paul is, of all the writers of the New Testament, Paul is the one who emphasizes marriage more than anybody else. They always like to go to Paul. They always like to go to Jesus. Now, they weren't married, so there you go. And yet... Paul was certainly one of those who just, well, he wrote more than anybody else in the New Testament with regards to marriage. Remember, Paul's the one who's going to give us Ephesians chapter 5 and the comparison between Jesus and the church and husbands and wives. Paul's going to be the one who's going to do to go on and, and give us, ex, ex, well, he's going to talk about in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, about the need for a, a elder, a bishop to be married and to raise children, etc., Paul wrote a lot about marriage, even though he wasn't married. And so when you take 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you, will, you remove it from its context, and you say to yourself, see there, this is saying, specifically verse 6, this is saying that you're going to go to a higher level of spirituality if you, if you don't have sex, if you don't have a relationship with a, with, with a, with a wife. That's going to that's gonna take you to a higher level. And it if you keep this passage in context, you'll find that that's just a very minor part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he is not in any way su suggesting that. It, it lets you see it, and, and I'm kind of running over myself here. Maybe, well, not maybe. The Holy Spirit can always speak better than Sonny. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, pause. So, why is 1 Corinthians chapter 7 written? What does God say is the reason that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What does it say? i got it underlined there for you in case you're having trouble. The church at Corinth evidently had come to the conclusion, or at least some in the church had come to the conclusion, that it was best not for, not for you to have intimacy. It's best for you not to be married. Probably has its roots in this Gnostic false teaching that you can be a better Christian if you don't get married. And so Paul's writing to address that. Now that's interesting, because when you come down to verse 6, and let's just jump there for a second, then we'll go back. He says, let's go to verse 7. I wish that all were as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Paul, being unmarried, seems to be saying here, and it, it, that falls out in context if you go on down to verses 32 and following, which we'll see later on. Paul is saying, I wasn't married, I wish everybody was just like me. And so, that seems to be what the passage is about. It ain't. In order to make that passage about verses 6 and 7, you've got to eliminate the first three verses, where Paul says, here's why I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you because some of you got questions with regards to this marriage thing. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, it'd be better if I didn't get married. And notice what Paul says, going back up to verse 1. 
it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That quote is what they are saying to Paul. So are you saying, Paul, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? So in other words, it's best if we don't marry. Paul then answers verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. You notice what he, he did there. As Paul opens up this passage that Catholicism abuses, we need to know that he's opening the passage to say it is good, it is best, it's, it, it is the safeguard with regards to sexual immorality. Every man ought to have a wife, every wife ought to have a, or every woman ought to have a husband, because in that process you're going to safeguard yourself from sexual immorality. That's the opening of the chapter. That's what he's really addressing. Now, when you get to verse 6, he's going to give us a little bit of an aside. That means kind of a, a side note. It's going to be a little insert that's not really part of the full argument as much as it's kind of an exception to the argument. And so he says in verse 6, Now, as a concession, watch it, not a command. Paul said it. I'm not commanding this. What I'm about to say is not a command, but rather... It's my viewpoint on the subject. As I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. Now, when you go that way, if we were to take every time Paul says, I wish everybody was like me, then you would have to go to the point where Paul said, I wish I could go to hell on behalf of the Jews. There are times Paul says, I wish I could just I wish I could give up my salvation so that if my Jewish brothers would come to the faith. You ready to do that one? Paul is not giving us, certainly not giving us, the foundation for the Catholic version of, of celibacy. But he is not giving us a command. He's giving us a, here are my thoughts. Now you might ask yourself, why would he have those thoughts that it's best not to marry? Well, skip on down. You're going to see in verse 13, again, I, I encourage you to read the whole context, but as you get to verse 26, it's real essential that you see what Paul is saying with regards to his mindset as to why he's addressing it in the way that he is. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And as you continue reading, he's going, he's going to talk about the idea of in, an individual not marrying. Or, if you are married, stay married. Just stay where you're at because of the present distress. Now, I don't know for certain exactly what was going on there, but there was intermittent moments within the first century where there was heavy persecution being brought down upon the church. Certainly in pagan cities like Corinth, there's going to be individuals who are going to think that Christians are odd because they don't worship multiple gods, that they don't, they don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols and all of those kind of things. And so they're going, to, they're going to come under persecution. Whatever the present distress is that Paul is referencing here, verse 26 is key to understanding chapter 7 because Paul is saying, I'm writing this because you're in troubled times. Then he goes on to express himself further in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. So Paul's writing what he's about to say is e even more the Catholic Church would take this as explicit uh, validation of their point of view with regards to celibacy, but it's only because they lift it out of the chapter. Verse 32, 
is dry, tied directly to verse 26 where he says, present distress, I don't want you to have anxieties. Then he goes on to explain. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now that makes sense. Because as a man moves through life, the less baggage he has, forgive me for thinking, speaking of it in that way, but let's just consider it that, the less people he's got following behind him, the less individuals who are dependent upon him for safety, etc., etc. When you move through a setting of distress, and all you got to think about is, how am I going to get through that valley of darkness? It's a lot easier journey. But if you got a family that you got to lead through that, you got to worry about the little infant back there. And is, is that infant going to be able to keep up? You got to worry about your wife and all the responsibilities she has and whether or not she's going to be too stressed out because of the distress in order to survive spiritually as we move through this dark valley. And so Paul is saying, because of the present distress, a man who's not married is going to be able to navigate that dark valley with less distractions than a man who is married. That makes sense. But in no way is he suggesting in verse 32 and following that that means that staying unmarried is the better route as far as spirituality is concerned. Then he says in verse 35, skipping on down, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. As you're moving through really distressful times, things that are, are pressuring on you, you got to keep your focus. And for a married man, sometimes it's tough to do that because he's focused on all of the things of the world. You, you just take a man in the world today who, who's, you know, trying to, you know, as they say, bring home the bacon. And uh, he's, he's stressed about making sure that he can make his, his mortgage payment. And and he's got children, perhaps, who are or maybe they're not faithful, or he got children who are, are very young and still at home, and he's concerned that they're not going to be trained up well. And he's got all this stuff on him. It just it's like a, a mountain of stress that comes upon him because he's got to be concerned about those who he's trying to get through this distress of a of a very dark valley. The unmarried man, on the other hand, all he's got to do is think about himself. He's got to take care of his own personal relationship with the Lord. He doesn't really have the intimate connections with regards to the family, etc. Okay? Now, they take that and they apply that to their bishops. So you see, it's better for a bishop to be unmarried because then he can dedicate himself totally to the Lord. Now think about that. Because a bishop's primary responsibility is to shepherd the family of God. Just because a bishop happens to be unmarried, it doesn't mean that he still doesn't have or shouldn't have all the pressures of the church upon his shoulders. And by the way, a bishop has to be married. There is not one single passage in all of the New Testament that suggests it's best for a bishop or even hints that bishops ought to be unmarried. So if you're going to be a person, remember our rules at the opening. If you're going to be a, man, a person who lets God speak, and God says you need to be married in order to be a bishop, then you are going to, by the natural conditioning of your position, you're going to have additional stresses that are upon you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says nothing about bishops in the church. 
That's not what that's not who he's writing to. It's not what it's addressing. He is addressing the general populace within the church, and he is saying essentially, go back to verse 26. If we're going through a very dark valley, it's probably best you stay right where you are. Don't be making big changes in your life. You're married, stay married. You're unmarried, stay unmarried, because you're passing through a dark valley, and big changes in your life are only going to create more difficulties for you to keep your focus. But if you go back and read the context, even in that context, Paul says, if you're married, stay married. Notice what he says at the end of verse 26. 26 remain as he is. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is not validating celibacy as being some kind of a higher realm of spirituality. When going through a distressful setting, it might allow you to have a greater focus during that movement through the dark valley, but that doesn't mean you're a better Christian. It doesn't mean that you're better qualified to be a leader of the church. Again, and we'll probably see more of this in the future of our series, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, both tell us that a bishop, a leader of God's church, must be the husband of one wife and raise believing children. So God says that the best way to be a good leader is to be a family man. Now, if you're just looking at yourself trying to survive the dark valley, maybe the best way for you to do that is don't have a family. But that's not the... That's not the path to becoming a bishop. It's not the path to becoming a church leader. I never was in the military. My father was, and I'm thankful for his service. But I've heard him and others say, with regards to their commanding officers and things of that nature, that uh, it, it's very important for uh, you know, your commanding officer to, to lead by example. And um, one of the reasons that elders are so significant to the church, bishops are so significant to the church, is because they are supposed to be men who go ahead of the church. They lead the church through that dark valley, if you will. Years ago when I was in college, I, I had to do a research project on the shepherds for my Bible degree. I had to do a research project on, the, a project on the shepherds of Judea. And it's interesting that the shepherds of Judea never drove their sheep. It's not, it's not like America today when you drive the cows to market or whatever. No, they, they would walk in front of their sheep. And there's a reason for that. They, were, they wanted to be first on the scene. Good shepherds want to get there before their sheep get there. Now come back to the being a family man. One of the reasons that God wants his bishops to be family men is because he wants them to be experienced on the path before he's got to lead God's people down that path. Now, let's take you to the results. Why is there such a, an emphasis on celibate elitism? Because of Gnosticism. And because of the false teachings of their magisterium. What does this result in? I'm glad you asked. As you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the opening, where it tells us why he's even writing the passage, I want you to notice verse 2. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have a wife and each woman should have a husband. Because of the temptations of sexuality. What you have on your screen here, right here, what you have on your screen is just a, a bunch of screenshots of, of news articles that I have uh, collected over the last year or so with regards to pedophilia within the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church would like for you to think there's isolated moments 
They'd like for you to think that this doesn't happen very often, but I'd just like for you to see the headlines that are listed there on these, these screenshots that I've got below uh, my face there. And notice what, what it says with regard. This is not an isolated thing. Hundreds, thousands of fam families have been disrupted and people have had their lives turned upside down because a priest couldn't keep his hands off of a little child. The question we ask in the opening is, why is there celibate elitism? And I told you, with regards to Gnosticism, the false teachings of the magisterium, etc. But I think maybe the, the bigger question for us to answer is, what does it lead to once you have celibate elitism as a kernel foundational doctrine to your church? What does it lead to? Now, a lot of a lot of Catholics would would say to you, they say, "Well, Sonny, so you're saying that just because a a man does not have a healthy relationship with a woman, then he's going to turn into a pedophile?" I never said that. But but let me ask you this, dear Catholic, what is causing all of this? Something's bringing about all of this over here at the at the far uh, over here. Uh, what is that? Your left. Over 4,800 children sexually abused in Portugal's Catholic churches up to 1950. There's a problem. There's a problem of pedophilia that's not being addressed. And I want to ask you, dear Catholic, if it's not the made-up doctrines of celibate elitism brings you to a higher level of spirituality, what's doing it? I would suggest to you that there are two things. Number one, there is the fact that the church, Catholic church, starves intentionally starves its leadership of healthy sexuality. The majority, as I've already said, the majority of them are peer pressured into never understanding what it's like to be a father, never understanding what it's like to be a mother, never understanding what it's like to be a husband, never understanding what it's like to be a wife. They're pressured into that because that's supposed to make you a better person. Even though 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 specifically says the opposite. You see the Antichrist theme here. The Holy Spirit gives us one directive, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. Catholicism does exactly the opposite. Think about that. Priesthood pedophilia. The second thing I would say to you, however, whatever you do with this, even if you go down that lame excuse that just because uh, a person is denied sexuality doesn't mean they're going to be a pedophile. I agree. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but you got a problem here doing something's going on. And I would say then secondarily, you need to ask yourself this. Why in the world is your carnal hierarchy of magisterium not doing a better job vetting these men? If you're so smart, and remember, two-thirds of your authority structure is on you, your magisterium, your church tradition. Only one-third is on Scripture. And so two-thirds of it outweighs Scripture, and you're so smart. 1 Timothy chapter 3 throw it aside. Titus chapter 1 doesn't matter. You're so smart. Then why in the world are, is your hierarchy not vetting these perverts better? Think of the children's lives who have been destroyed by the Catholic Church because they were so full of themselves, they thought they knew better than 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Think of it. Now that may seem a little blunt. And then again, the whole series has been somewhat blunt. But it's, fun. it's time for somebody to say it. 
And it's time for somebody to own it. As this movie circulates throughout America and eventually throughout the world, blockbuster as far as is bringing in funds, and it alerts us to child sex trafficking, I don't want you to forget that Catholicism has its own fault in promoting that very concept. Again, I ask you, please, read these various articles or take time to screenshot that yourself. Take time to at least <coughs> look at the, the headlines. Look up some here on the, let's see if I can do it right, yeah, right here, this one. If you look that one up, it's got various websites you can look up and it gives you even more information with regards to it. Priesthood pedophilia. Number one, I am convinced, is because they have, as part of their doctrine, starving their church leaders of healthy sexuality. And number two, what failures they have been in vetting these men. Think about that. Why would you trust a guy who's never had any personal relationship with little children, a healthy personal relationship with little children? Why would you trust him in very, very private, intimate kind of contexts where the man is going to have power over the person, not just physically. This is what's so perverted about it. It's not just physically. Probably more importantly, it's spiritually. What kind of perverted lines have these priests used on children, spiritually speaking, to get them to do what they have done? Ah, oh, yeah, there's a horrible, horrible problem in the Catholic Church, and I am convinced it has to do with their celibate elitism. There are the five questions that I presented in the opening, and I hope that you were taking notes as you went through, and I hope that uh, you, you got the answers from them. Tough lesson, but one that somebody's got to say it. Somebody's got to say it. And so I did. And I'm hopeful that there's at least a few Catholics out there with a conscience that would understand what they are contributing to. And those of us who are not Catholic, that we would take this lesson to heart and that we would understand just why it's so important for series like this to happen. Please support things like this. I desperately need your help in supporting our ministry. Please, if you will, reach out to us. And if you got a little extra missionary money, send it our way. Thanks for being with me tonight. Sonny Chow saying, be there, Matthew 16, 26.